Good morning. These introductions make one feel like one is floating on air. So just to bring us all down to ground, let me tell you where my wife and I were on Wednesday night. We went to watch the bats. Do you remember the bats? Eddie Eckstein and the boys? Singing all those songs from the 60s and from my web youth and all that. And I was telling you to go it. It was wonderful. He introduced himself as follows, which um, Sam, you'll understand where I'm coming from this one. Eddie says, I'm so excited for all you folk that have the privilege of listening to me sing tonight. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to what I have to say. (laughs) I I want to teach on revival. It's a word that's often used and seldom understood. I don't claim to understand it fully. But I've read a lot, and I've studied a lot. And I've had glimpses and tastes of genuine revival, enough to be able to say, oh God, if this is what it is, bring it on. And I want to share with you some of the things that I've learned from the Word and from the records of the revivals of the past. So let me just get a quick reality check. How many of you folk have heard of the great Azusa revival? Now that means stick your hand up. And what about the Welsh Revival? Another famous one. How about Toronto? Brownsville? Lakeland? Now, there's a tremendous amount of debate over the years about which of these revivals were genuine works of God, which of them were false, which of them started in the spirit and ended in the flesh, and so on and so forth. And I'm not going to get into that debate at all. Because I think a more important question is to join the debate of the people who are saying, Is there going to be a Holy Spirit, earth-shaking, Jesus-honoring, Bible-based revival in our time? That's the important question. Because it's this time that we are saved for. It's this time we are living in. It's this time when we need to respond. So again, I want to see a genuine show of hands. Don't, Don't stick your hand up because this is the thing you do. Do you believe, do you believe that you will see revival in your day. Because I passionately do. I fervently do. Seven years ago in our church, the village church in Lone Hill, we, um, in fact, Pastor Sam was one of the people who spoke into it. There were two others. And then there was confirmation after confirmation after confirmation that God was going to send revival. So we started immediately doing the only thing you actually can do from the human perspective. And we called people together and we started to pray every Monday night. That was seven years ago. There are 20 people that every Monday night, barring something catastrophic, 20 people meet there. We meet and we cry out to God every week and we've been doing that for seven years because we believe that we will still be praying when it comes. For his word is true. And we can trust him and believe him for that. I want to focus on Isaiah 61 today. I want to take it as a template for the great revival that I believe is imminent. And I do believe it's imminent. I believe it's knocking on the door, honestly. They're about to come. And I also want to describe two revivals from the past and then draw valuable lessons out of that. Things that we can learn from that. Because by looking back and measuring that against the truth of the scripture, we can see the application of those scriptural principles. 
as they play out in real life, and we can learn a lot from that. This morning I want to showcase uh, a revival which happened in 1966 in our own country, in the hot land of Zululand, known normally as the Quasi-Sibantu revival. How many of you have heard of that? Well, those who haven't, you're in to hear something which was remarkable right on our doorstep and not that long ago. And the people that were involved are still there in Quasi-Sibantu. And then tonight I want to talk about the Hebrides Revival of 1949. How many of you have heard of the Hebrides Revival, also called the Lewis Awakening? Oh, wow. This has got to be one of the most outstanding revivals of all time. Yet it's so few people know about it. So it will be a tremendous pleasure to, tonight to tell you about that and to, and to play some recordings of the actual man who was there. And you can hear the passion in his voice as he talks about what God did. Okay, in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you know the passage well. I see you've actually got it up on, on your wall there, quoting from, from Luke. This is what Jesus quoted from. He unrolled the scroll of Isaiah when he started his ministry. And this is his statement of his ministry into the world. So let me read it to you, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives, and release for prisoners, also recovery of sight for the blind is in there, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stopped there. If you're reading Isaiah, if you're following along in Isaiah, you see that's halfway through a verse. He stopped there, rolled up the scroll and said, today this has come true in your presence. He spoke about the first part because the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was not to bring judgment, to, but to bring life. He said, I have not come to judge, but I've come to save. So his entire ministry was to proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord's favor. He was saying, the day of God's favor is here. Here I am. I've come to bring favor. But when he comes again, and I truly suspect also that that will be in the lifetime of many who sit here today, then it's a different story. Then it's come to judge the living and the dead and to create a new heaven, earth, and to bring in his glory into this cosmos. And there will be judgment then. We, the church, his body, stand between his first coming and his second coming. Yet it's his spirit that courses through his body, the church. And we have a twofold message. We proclaim the day of the Lord's favor, but we also proclaim the great and terrible day of the Lord, which you'll see is verses 2 and 3. It goes on and says, and the day of vengeance of our God. But we also go on and proclaim and to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes and the oil of gladness and joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Wow, we the church have a twofold trumpet to blast. And it says, Jesus has come and he has brought salvation in his name. But he is coming again. 
and he will bring judgment. Become right with him. To the world we say, bow your knee before the coming king. To the church we say, be comforted and put on oil and joy instead of mourning. Put on a garment of praise for your king is coming. Verse 4, I'll come to later, because verse 4 is the revival template that I want to teach on this morning. But first I must answer two important questions. Before I can deal with the template for revival, two questions have to be asked, and I'll attempt to answer. The first is, well, what actually is revival? Now we talk about revival, but what actually is it? And secondly, why do we need it? What is it? And question two, why do we need revival? Hey, aren't things okay as they are? Why do we need it? So first let me tell you what I believe it is not. Always good to start with the not and then we'll go to what it is. What revival is not? It's not a special rally. That's just part of our vocabulary sometimes. Some of the words we use, you know, we'll be having a revival on Friday and Saturday and Sunday and Monday. That's not, that's not a revival. Revival is not something which we put on a, t a calendar and schedule. That's just vocabulary which is used in some denominations and churches and by some preachers and pastors and so on. That's not revival. It's not even a special period of growth and health. You say, wow, our church is really in revival. What do you mean? Well, it's going so well. You know, the numbers are increasing and God's blessing is there. And, you know, we really sensed his presence last Sunday. Not so much the Sunday before that. And we're really hoping for next Sunday. But, you know, it's, it's good. And it's good. And the, the folk are coming in and, the, and all that. That's not revival. That's not even close to revival. That's just health. And we should be in church health all the time, shouldn't we? Thirdly, it's not hype and drama. It's not a show and tell of what the Holy Spirit is doing in his church. Whoa! You've got to come to our meeting, brother. You should see, you know, God is doing these incredible things. That's not revival. Revival is not a show and tell. That's for kindergarten kids. Revival is so much more than that. So much more than all of these things. Let me tell you, what it is, as drawn from the people who have experienced revival over the hundreds of years and have left the record for us. Revival is a sudden and sovereign move of God. You cannot plan for it. You cannot bring it on. You can pray for it. You can expect. You can cry out with all your heart for revival, but you cannot say, tomorrow revival will come. For God decides when he's going to come in revival and he comes suddenly. Suddenly. Look at the book of Acts. And they were praying. And they were in the upper room. And they were doing what Jesus said they should do. And they were waiting. And their hearts were full of expectation. And then it says, And suddenly there was the sound of a great and mighty wind. And the place shook and tongues of fire appeared on the 120 people. Revival came. The first revival, vive, life, giving life, not to the world, but to the church, so that the church can minister life to the world. Secondly, it's a visitation from God. If you come along tonight, I'll play you some clips of the man who was right in the heart of the Hebrides revival, Duncan Campbell. And his word for it was, and he had this broad Scottish accent, which I won't even try and imitate, when God stepped down. 
kept speaking about it. said, and this is what happened to this and this. And, this. and then God stepped down. Suddenly, mightily, wonderfully, God stepped down. Thirdly, it's an acute and sustained church-wide and often country-wide, nationwide, sense of the presence of God. Have you sensed the presence of God in the service? Yeah, surely. Surely there have been times where you've sat and said, this place is almost thick with the presence of God. I, I feel if I open my eyes and look around, Jesus would be sitting in the chair next to me. He's that close. You've had those experiences? Well, revival is an intensity of that. Where not one or two people in a gathering would sense the presence of God, but a thousand people together would say, Ah, God has walked in. He's here. I can only fall on my knees and worship Him. A deep and powerful sense of the presence of God, and it's sustained. It doesn't go away hoping for next Sunday. We walk out into our cars and our lives and our schools and our businesses and the sense of God is as tangible in the business place as it is in the meeting place on a Sunday. Fourthly, it's what's been described as a community saturated by God. Saturated with the Holy Spirit. Everywhere you look in revival, on the highways and the byways and the roads, and the business places and the schools are saturated with the presence of God. People are finding salvation at school and at work. And sometimes nobody's telling them. They're just saying, oh God, have mercy on me. And they fall down in the street. That's revival. It's a dramatic return to the Acts chapter 2 Christianity. A dramatic return. And there's no doubting about it. You'd never look to somebody and say, you know what, I think, I think is this not like Acts chapter 2? You'd be saying, this is like the church that is described in Acts chapter 2. That's what revival is. So, so obvious. Nothing subtle about revival. It does not creep up and surprise us and say, oh, uh, when, when did revival come? And that's not revival. You know, I've had people who've walked into our little church in Lonely and, they, and they've heard me or somebody else preaching about revival and they've said, but you guys, don't you realize you're already in revival? I said, no, no, we're not. No, I'm sorry. You might have come out of a situation where this seems like it, but it isn't. This is not revival. It's much, much greater than that. Revival is also a combination of reformation, restoration, and renewal. And I will unpack those words for you a little bit later because we use them often in different contexts. But it's a combination of all three of those. And it extends from the church into society. God steps down into his church and he lights us up and we pour out. I want to say something again, which I'll repeat later. Revival is not a come and see what God is doing with us thing. We go out when revival hits. When revival fire pours down upon his church, the church scatters into the world and says, Wow! Hear the good news. Hear the gospel. People don't get saved in meetings necessarily. They get saved all over the place. And they get brought back into the meetings of the church. And lastly, 
Revival is a time when Jesus manifests himself gloriously. Gloriously. In a time of revival, there's often a lot of criticism. A lot of people criticize it, but in a true revival, it's unmistakable. A, a pagan, a, a practicing atheist would be able to walk into a church service and say, I don't know what's going on here, but wow, Jesus is glorious. In revival, the hardest of sinners fall to their faces and say, oh God, I've been so wrong. Because Jesus manifests in his glory through his church. A man called Brian Edwards wrote a book called Revival, A People Saturated with God. It's available in paperback still on Amazon. Unfortunately, it's not on uh, electronic version. It's not available. If you can get hold of a copy, get hold of a copy. It's a man who's deeply studied revival and gives us all these accounts of what has happened and the principles. This is how he describes revival. He writes, A true Holy Spirit revival is a remarkable increase in the spiritual life of a large number of God's people, accompanied by an awesome awareness of the presence of God, intensity of prayer and praise, a deep conviction of sin, with a passionate longing for His holiness, and unusual effectiveness in evangelism, leading to the salvation of many unbelievers. Revival is remarkable, large, effective, and above all, it is something that God brings about. It is quite impossible for man to create revival, though men may prepare and pray for it. Revival is the work of the sovereign God, not primarily for the benefit of his people, but for his own honor and glory. And it's only that last bit that I would take issue with. Because yes, of course, in revival, God receives all the glory and all the praise. But you know what? If God does not revive his church, we're dead. Oh, we need revival. Yes, God is glorified, but we need to understand that we need revival. Like we need water to live and air to breathe. We need it. I want to describe a little chemistry experiment that my wife and I love to show our grandkids. My one grandchild is four and a half, another one is pushing two. We have fun. And um, they, they want us to repeat this little experiment almost every time they come to a house, which is every single week. So you take a little bowl of water, a dish, of, a dish, but fill it with milk, just fresh milk. So you've got this dish of milk. And then you take a little eyedropper and take two different colors of vegetable dye. Let's say a green drop on this side and then on this side into the milk, a little drop of, say, red. And they just make two little blobs. They don't, they don't mix or merge or anything. Then take some pepper and you shake the pepper all over the top. So see the scene. You've got this little basin, little dish of milk. And it's got these two little colored blobs, one of different colors. And it's got these little black flecks all over it. Then you take some sunlight liquid. And you just drop one little squirt right into the middle of the dish and see what happens. I can give you the scientific explanation if you like, but it, it's boring because it's just so fascinating to actually observe what happens. The first, you've got to do this experiment. You must, you must do it. The first thing that happens is those little, little black specks of pepper scoot in a, in a second. They just shoot to the side. I mean, it is, it is that quick. They just go. 
and they all line up around the side. And then from the center where that sunlight liquid dropped in, there's a boiling and a current starts to boil up. And it comes up and outwards, up and outwards, up and outwards. As it does, it takes those two colors and starts to swirl them and mix them. And so you've got these glorious mixings of these colors, and it goes on and on and on. You think, when is this going to stop? But it's a chemical reaction. The, the, the protein in the milk and the enzyme in the, in the sunlight liquid are, are interacting and creating this chemical reaction. But here's the thing. Take your finger and try and help it along a bit. Give it a little swirl and see what happens. Instantly, the reaction stops. And all those lovely colors just become a gray, ugly muck in the plate. This, this kaleidoscope of color just becomes gray. Now the lessons for revival are clear because this is a powerful picture of revival. Here's the church. Milky. Quite nice, but just milk. And it's got all these little flecks on it. All these little demonic influences and bad spirits and all that sort of stuff. You know, Jesus said, in, in, in amongst the wheat field, they're going to be reeds, right? Don't try and pull them out. When he comes, he'll deal with them. So we have all these realities. And, and they've got different colors. You know, the church is, one church is red. Nice red color. Another church is blue. And, and so on and so forth. But then... Revival comes, not like sun-like liquid, but S-O-N, sunlight liquid. Revival is like a drop of the sun being dropped into the middle. And this reaction starts. And from the center out, a current starts which doesn't stop. And the colors become glorious. And even before that happens, all the demonic influences in that church just scatter. Revival... There's often not too much deliverance ministry in revival times, funnily enough, because that gets dealt with like right at the beginning. Boom! Well, can look, Jesus shows up, right? The, the devils are going to stick around? No. No, no, they're going to head for the hills as fast as their stubby little legs will enable them. And then this glorious color. Marvelous thing, going outwards, not inwards, outwards from the center, outwards. And here's the sad part. In almost every revival of history, and this morning I'll tell you one practical example of how it happened, man comes along and sticks his finger in the milk and says, let me help you, Lord. Churn it up a bit. Let's get this thing going a bit better. Boof. It's over. And all that's left is a gray liquid with an unpleasant taste. That's a classic of what happens with revival. All right, the second question I must ask and answer is, why do we need revival? Well, considering what I've already said, it should be obvious, right? It should be obvious why, why we need it. But let me get a bit more specific. In Isaiah's day, there was great spiritual darkness in the land. Listen to what he wrote in Isaiah 20 verse 2. He wrote, See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. Darkness covers the earth. And there's a thick, horrible darkness upon the people. That was Isaiah's day. It's just so today. Oh, look around. Look at our nation. 
Look at the nations of the world. Look at what's happening in America. Man, I've been following this election on CNN because I get up at 4.30 in the morning and when I have my first cup of tea, coffee's bad for one so early, then I watch a little bit of what's happening. Oh man, I'm so glad I'm not an American. I wouldn't know who to vote for. It's just an unbelievable, godless mess, frankly. Look at Europe and look at what's happening in the Middle East. Look around. There's thick and dark darkness over the earth, just like Isaiah's day. In Isaiah 59, verses 14 and 15, he says, So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Have we seen that prophecy playing out before our very eyes? Have we not? It is just so today. There's no much difference between Isaiah's day and our day. It's in the world. It's around us. But it's also in the church. You know, when I use the word church, I'm not talking about this church or uh, the church that I'm part of in Lone. I'm talking about the church across the face of the earth in all the countries of the world. The church has lost its direction, you know. Have you ever heard of a man called Professor Len Sweet? This means yes. This means no. And a blank look means I'm going to be Googling him straight away. Google him. He's written for 64 books. He's the kind of guy you should know about. He travels the world. And when I first met him about 15 years ago, he had just written a book called... Uh, I can't remember which was the one that he had written right then, but he had he'd written a number of books, one of which was all about what he called the Jesus Deficit Disorder. That's the term he, he, he coined. He said, wherever he goes, everywhere in the world, and he travels length and breadth of the world, lecturing. He also lectures in two universities in the States. He says, wherever I go, I see that Jesus is not the center of the church anymore. We pay lip service to him. We use his name, but he's not at the center of the church. He calls it the Jesus Deficit Disorder. I met him again two weeks ago. He was here for a conference in Pretoria. And I had 15 minutes during the tea break to sit and catch up with him. And I said, Len, you, over the 15 years since we saw each other, have things improved in the world church that you know of? He said, Chris, it has got worse. The church has lost its way. It's lost its focus on Jesus. Let me give you one practical example. I know it's a humorous one, but it happens to be a true one. A colleague of mine who I got first-hand the story, he was actually in the meeting, was in a pastor's fraternal. And a pastor of a very, very large church, this was some 10 years ago, was sharing and said, you know, guys, I had a bit of a revelation. I was preparing for the service on Saturday. And I was plotting out, you know, the order of service and how we, what we're going to do. And I felt the Lord Jesus say to me, where am I in all of this? Where am I in all of this? And I said, you know, Lord, you're right. I'm going to give you a five-minute slot. <laughs> I kid you not. You're right, Lord. I'm going to give you a five-minute slot in his own house, in the church of which Jesus is the head and the Lord, and the King. The church has lost its way. It's lost its focus on Jesus. 
I need to spill this out for what it means to be Jesus-centered, though, because, again, that's so easy to use the word. You know, be Jesus-centered, what does it mean? It means that Jesus is the only Savior. It means there's no other way to eternity, that he truly is the only way to the Father, that only through him, in him, and him in us, can we be born again of the Spirit and have life. There is no other way. Yet the church at large has compromised that most foundational doctrine of the Christian church. Secondly, Jesus is the effective head and Lord of our church. He's not just an absent figurehead. He's the one that the leaders should be consulting, elevating, giving honor and glory to, basing their leadership styles the church programs and everything on what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and what Jesus has revealed to us of the fullness of the triune God in the fullness of the scripture. Short of that, he's not the effective head of his church. Jesus, to be Jesus-centered, Jesus must be our model for life and ministry. You know, I, I speak to conservative brothers, and they'll say, yep, no, 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 he's our model. I say, what do you mean by that? Well, we, you know, we try and live graciously, loving, kind, long-suffering. And they list the fruit of the Spirit. Fair enough. And I speak to my Pentecostal brothers, and they'll say, no, no, we, 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 we follow after Jesus as our model. I say, what do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, we prophesy, heal, work miracles, and raise the dead. Well, if Jesus is going to be our model, then we must live according to the fruit of the Spirit and minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not an either-or. It's a both. It's a both-and. Fruit and gifts coming together in one glorious unity. For that's what we see in Jesus. And lastly, the part that's ignored almost uniformly by the church. If Jesus is to be the center, then he must be seen as the interpreter of the scripture. You know, when he came, he opened the Old Testament to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, and he showed them all of what it said about whom? Himself. He taught on the Old Testament law, on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He interpreted the very law itself and actually took two of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and actually gave the correct meaning. It's all about him. Now think of the insanity, folk. The insanity. God himself comes and becomes one of us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and stands and says, you've been waiting for me. I, your creator God, am here. Why? we not look to him to understand the record that he's left for us? Why? We read every other book. We consult every other teacher and prophet and apostle in the household of God. But he himself is the interpreter of scripture. We need to put on Jesus' spectacles when we read the scripture, whether we're reading Isaiah or Genesis or Ephesians. And we look through the filter of the life of Jesus in order to understand all of scripture. Short of that, Jesus is not central. These are the practical applications of it. Here's the sadness and the glory. I truly believe that the only thing that's going to bring the church back to the centrality of Jesus 
is not Len Sweet's ministry. It's not the books that I keep writing about it or the blog that I post every week about it. Revival is the only thing that's going to turn the church back to the centrality of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes, because what is the work of the Holy Spirit? He says, behold Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes with power into his church, he'll say, there is Jesus. And the church at last will turn again to its head and to its Lord and to its Savior. Guys, revival is not the reward to a church that's doing well. You don't earn revival. Revival comes because the church is not doing well. And God looks down and says, I must step in and save my church so that my world can be reached. And he steps down into his church in revival. Listen to how Isaiah describes it. Isaiah 59, verses 15 to 17. Second half of verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. And he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak and stepped in. He basically said, step aside. I, your God, will do it. And that's what happens in revival. Step aside. I, your God, will do it. This is the essence of revival. Okay, as promised, and by the way, um, your man at the back very kindly said that he'd hold up a sign saying 30 minutes up. I said, don't worry, I'll stop myself after an hour and a half, but please, sir, <laughs> give me the, if I have the gift of continuance. Okay. Let me tell you about the quasi-Sabantu revival of 1966. Uh, as a demonstration of what actually happened in our country, which embodies a lot of what I've just been talking about, it actually didn't occur at quasi-Sabantu. It occurred about 25-odd kilometers to the north in Zululand in a place called Mapumulu. Quasi-Sabantu came a little bit later, and that's quite significant, but I'll explain why it's significant. The man concerned was a man called Erno Steigen. Erno Steigen was a Lutheran minister, born in South Africa, but of Lutheran parents and German descent. And he and about 12 others went into Zululand to try and save the Zulu nation. And they labored for 12 years fruitlessly. They, they couldn't make a breakthrough. They, they couldn't. It, it was impossible. They tried, they tried, they tried, they tried, they tried everything in their own power. With such earnestness, they could not break through. And then one day, a lady came to the encampment, to their mission station, and said, that her daughter, that they had to tie her up to a stake in the ground outside the home because she was totally insane and, and if anybody came too close to her, she would attack her and bite them and so on and so forth. If they could come and free her daughter, she would believe in this Jesus that they were proclaiming, this God they were proclaiming. So they wrapped themselves in zeal and they said, this we can do. For two weeks they ministered to that girl. They brought her, they untied her, and she went totally maniacal. They tied her up again. They brought her into the mission statement. They prayed for her 24 
Seven, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, nothing, nothing, nothing. It was a total and absolute failure. And after two weeks, they had to go back to the woman and say, I'm sorry. The woman said, so your God isn't real, huh? Ernest Eichen, who's still around, records in, uh, in, a, in a video presentation he made fairly recently that they were devastated. They were devastated and it drove them to conduct a Bible study. So he called his little missionaries together and he said, right, twice a day now, we're going to sit and we're going to study the book of Acts to try and find out what is it that happened there that's not happening now. Why did they have power and we don't? Why can't this happen in our day? And they started to study. After several days of this, one of the young women in the team suddenly cried out, and she used these words exactly, Oh, revive your work, O oh God, revive your work, O oh God. And this was the significant moment when a person from their heart cried out, Oh, God, revive your work. Lord, I can't do it. We can't do it. Oh, God, revive your work. They followed ten, ten days of conviction. That team were on their knees for the next ten days because one after one they were convinced and convicted of their own sin, their own fallibility, their own lack of righteousness, their own lack of standing with God because they had not surrendered to Jesus. They were religious people. And I believe in those ten days they got born again. Uh, something radical happened. But for ten days they agonized before God. And then Erno recalls, he says, as in the time of Acts there came a sound of a great wind. There was no wind, but the sound of the wind came and shook their mission station. And his words were, everyone was conscious of the presence of God. All we could see and do was to bow down and worship the God of heaven. The very next day, the lady in the district who was in charge of the school for Sangomas, the one who actually taught the initiates in those arts, came and said, I need somebody to break me free from the chains of the devils. I am under the, the constant attack and I cannot live. Set me free. And when they opened their mouths and prayed for her, she was set free in an instant born again of the Spirit of God and the revival started. Right there and then suddenly like a wind from heaven. After that, many, 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 many hundreds started to come. Erno preached every day. Every day he started to preach because they were just coming in by their hundreds. As they came, he just filled up whatever rooms they had or, he, or they stood outside and he preached the gospel. He gave them the gospel and he ministered to them. And healings including uh, healing from blindness and, and some many very dramatic things happened without any ministry. Nobody went and laid hands on these people. As the word of God was proclaimed, these things were happening before their very eyes as God stepped down and did his work. They asked the people, what is bringing you, you know? This is the rural area of Zululand. That this is pre-cell phone time. How were they knowing? How were they coming? And this is what they said. One after the other said this, quote, A power within us has driven us to come here. 
We can't sleep anymore. We can't recover our peace of mind. All we can see is our sins. And they came. Let me quote from what Erlo Steigen said. He said, we could go out the front door of the building at any time of the day, any day of the week, and there would be between 100 and 200 people standing there. They would wake up in the morning, open the door of the mission, and there would be 200 people who had come during the night. And as the dawn broke, there they were standing, quietly and silently, for they had been drawn by the Spirit of God. Outstanding. It happened day after day, week after week after week after week. There was a true dramatic revival on our doorstep that few people know about today. But you see what happened then? Is they said, this seems to be a good thing. Let's raise some funds and build a bigger place. Kid you not. So missionary teams came in from the Netherlands and from Germany and bringing their Euros for that the Deutsche Marks, whatever it was with them. And they started to pour in capital and the missionaries came and they, they, they said, we haven't got enough room here, so they moved 25 kilometers to Quasi Sabantu where they built. I was there 27 years ago. My daughter was a teenager at that stage and I had gone into the full-time ministry and she'd become a troubled pastor's kid. It's a tough time for, for teenage girls when their dad suddenly decided to go full-time into ministry, believe me. So I said, this is a time for some daughter and dad time. So I stuck her in the car with a suitcase and I said, we're just going to drive. We'll find a place. We'll stay. We'll just move around the country for a week and we can just talk and pray and sort these things out. And I thought, oh, yeah, there's this place I've heard about in Zululand. Let me go there. And we rocked up there. They had, by that stage, built a 10,000-seater auditorium. 10,000-seater auditorium. They had their own radio station their own clinic, their own schools, plural. They had farms. It was booming and bustling. There were hundreds and hundreds of people. Yet all I could sense was a deep and abiding sense of depression and oppression. It hung heavy in the air. God wasn't there. I could not sense his presence. We didn't even stay the night. I said to Corey, let's get out got back into the car and we went off in the other, in the other direction, found a B&B somewhere else. Shortly after that, the community, and it was led by some very, very heavyweight evangelical theologians and ministers, wrote an open letter to Erno Steyer because bad practice had crept in, oppression had crept in. They wrote an open letter saying, we must rebuke you, my brother, this, this, this has to stop from this revival of God to oppression. About 10 years ago, I was part of the faculty in the Senate of the University of Zululand. And I went along to one of their faculty meetings and somebody had proposed that Erlo Steigen be awarded an honorary degree for the work that he had done. And one after the other, the faculty members put their hands up and said, we have to oppose that. I'm sorry, you cannot honor the man. We have to oppose it. Isn't that tragic? I'm convinced this started as a genuine revival of God. I read the records and I listen to him. Uh, and there are video clips you can, you can get onto YouTube and listen to him talk. I'm convinced it was a genuine move of God. 
right here in our nation. And then man put his finger into the saucer of milk and it just became grey, oppressive sludge with a bad taste. How sad. How terribly sad. So what can we learn from this? First of all, we can learn that revival is, as I said just now, a divine initiative. And it came at a moment of the most intense ministry failure. It did not come at a moment of success. It came when the people said, we have failed, oh God. We cannot survive without you. Come, oh Lord, and revive your work. Then revival came. It was sudden. But it was sustained. It didn't go away the next day. Day after day after day after day after week after month, the people came, the people came, and God ministered to them. And the most outstanding things happened. There was the clear evidence of supernatural work, yet not necessarily as we expected. Ernest Steigen came from a Lutheran background, so he said, you know, there was no tongues, there was no singing in the Spirit, but people were falling down flat on their faces for hours at a time as the Spirit of God struck them. He was amazed. There were clear signs of the evidence of the work of the Spirit. The blind were seen, but not the way that we necessarily think it should happen. And here's the big thing for this morning um, takeaway. It was all demanding. All demanding. Every morning there's another 200 people to be ministered to. Every night there's another crowd coming. Day after day he stood and preached and preached and preached. And his people ministered and ministered and ministered and ministered. Week after week and month after month. All demanding. And the last lesson, don't put your fingers into the work of God. Because it will stop. And what is left is a bad thing not a good thing. How am I doing for time? Can I go on? Let me turn to the, the burden of the message then, which is Isaiah 61 verse 4. It says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated, and they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. What is revival? What can we expect in this great Revival that I believe is knocking at the door. First of all, reformation. Reformation of the church happens when God steps into it. Uh, there's a move around at the moment. It's called the New Apostolic Reformation. I'm not talking about that. I've got some huge reserve about that. I've got some serious questions about any structure. I've got questions about any structured attempt to try and bring the church into structure and reformation because this is an act of God, not of men. It's not a solution to disunity. I believe that a Holy Spirit inspired reformation is very much going to be very much like the internet. If you had to dry, draw a picture of the internet, you'd see all these service providers and these hubs and everything gets networked. When the Spirit of God comes in revival, pastors get networked, churches get networked. They just start to connect because God's doing it. And you don't need people fronting around calling themselves apostles or whatever. God's there. And he networks. He orchestrates the Reformation. You know why? Because when God pours out his spirit, the very demands of the ministry that that brings about 
demands networking. If you look at all the great revivals of the past, the Wales, Welsh revival, the Hebrides revival, there was so much on the go that all the other pastors in the areas, the ones that were of men and women of good standing with God, they immediately came along to Duncan Campbell and said, how can we help? So the German Lutherans were coming and the Methodists were coming and whatever, they just came and said, we want to, we want to help you because God is doing something here. That's how it actually is going to happen, I believe. Because it's too great for an individual. It's too great for one local church. It's a work of God. Secondly, true revival is going to bring a restoration. Restoration of the household of God, the church. So that it comes back to the divine pattern of the early church that we see and read about in the book of Acts and in Paul's writings. The church has been dominated for too long by one-man ministries. The great man of God. I am the mon of God. Step aside. I have the word of revelation and the oracles and I hold the purse strings as well. Time is over for that. When revival comes, it's no longer the man of God. It's God's man and God's woman who rise up. Team becomes all-important. Everybody moves together. Every gift comes together. The, part, the body are, reticulates itself into this wonderful, working, restored whole. The church in revival, true revival, stops becoming a watch-us-what-we-do thing. It stops becoming a show-and-tell. If you see show-and-tell churches, they're not in revival. I would doubt very much if there's any genuine revival there. Because revival is a going, not a coming. You, you, do, you don't go and put on TV programs about let everybody see what's happening in your church. You go out and you influence the other churches and the world. You just go out and you give freely, freely, freely of what God is doing. And most of all, revival will bring a restoration on the focus of Jesus. Jesus. You can be blessed that your pastor has got a bee in his bonnet and it's buzzing the word Jesus. Jesus, 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 because that is a foretelling of revival. When Jesus is lifted up, he said, I will draw all men to myself. With revival comes the restoration of the centrality of Jesus. And the third component is what we normally understand as a revival, the great outpouring of the Spirit of God, which I've been describing up till now. The revival that coming to the door will not just be a restoration. It will not just be a, re a, a renewal movement like we've seen in the past. It will not even just be a great signs and wonders thing. It will be all three. Restoration, renewal, revival, all together. And it will be a Jesus revival. A real Jesus revival. A Jesus revival. Guys, let me close with a challenge to you and to me at a personal level. What can we expect personally? Not if revival comes, but 
when it comes? Well, firstly, it will be emotionally volatile. Your emotions will go up and down and you'll be saying, whoa, what's happening here? It will be emotionally challenging. You cannot stand in the presence of God and say, this is nice. Oh, this is so nice. Uh-uh. It will be messy. And it will be spontaneous. Meetings that were scheduled to start at 9.15 and end at 11.15 <laughs> will go until noon and three in the afternoon and six at night and midnight. That's what happens. It will not be within your ability to control. Did you know there was another revival in Wellington area? Did you know that? And the key players were two men, Andrew Murray Sr. and Andrew Murray Jr. And in Franschhoek, this tiny little beautiful place of Franschhoek in the Western Cape, a genuine, wonderful revival broke out. Guess where? Dutch Reformed Church, guys. That's where revival came. And there's a record of Andrew Murray Sr., He's in the main auditorium and there's a whole bunch of people off to another room and they're praying and it's become a red-hot, fiery prayer meeting. And he runs in there and he says, Stop this disorderly. I am your pastor. Nothing happened. He said, You must listen to me. Stop. And I just went on praying. And a deacon came up to him and very wisely said, Reverend, best let God do what he's doing. <laughs> And revival came to Wellington and Worcester and Franschhoek. And it changed a lot of the Dutch Reformed Church was, was radically changed by that. It will call for humility and transparency because your sin and my sin will be surfaced, float to the top of the milk, and we'll have to deal with it, often publicly. We'll have to deal with the things that God is dealing with. That's what happens in a revival. It will demand our time and our energy. It will be all-consuming. All-consuming. But it will be glorious. Glorious. What would you do in order to have the privilege of standing in the midst of a genuine, wonderful, authentic move of God? It will be glorious. And it will be the only hope for our country and our church and our world. The only hope. I want to show you a brief uh, video. It's about eight minutes. It's just of a couple of men speaking. You see some pictures of them, but it's just a video of, it's an audio track really. But I want you to hear these men. One of them is the man I'll be speaking about tonight from the Hebrides revival, Duncan Campbell. I want you to hear the passion in their voices as they talk about what God has done, and then I'll close with a personal word of challenge. I'll tell you, friend, the origin of revival rests not in man, but rests in God the Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God alone can originate revival. We need to invite the Spirit of God back 
into the church. We need to invite the Spirit of God back into our lives. The church of Jesus Christ is largely sleeping like a great bedroom. And you have all the Christians in bed and they're all sleeping. And they're saying, please don't wake me up. I want to sleep off. And of course, when God starts to operate a revival, people cannot sleep. You can't sleep in church when the Spirit of God awakes the people. Look at the first verse of this 52nd chapter. Awake! Awake! Put on strength! Wake it up, you sleepy Christians! Awake, all that sleepest! Arise from the dead! Christ will give you life! a person embrace death with Christ? Why should a person be willing to go in identification down to the cross and into the tomb and up again? I'll tell you why. Because it's the only way that God can get glory out of a human being. When God stepped down, suddenly, men and women all over the parish were gripped by the fear of God. The Holy Spirit began to move among the people. What was that? Revival! Revival! Not an evangelist. Not a special effort. Not anything at all organized on the basis of human endeavor. But an awareness of God that gripped the whole community, so much so that work stopped. And uh, the minister writing about what happened in the following morning said this, You met God on Meadow and Moorland. You met him in the homes of the people. God seemed to be everywhere. The praying and the meetings continued for several months until one night. A very remarkable thing happened. There, kneeling among straw in the barn, when suddenly one young man rose and read part of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing of the Lord. And he shut his Bible. And then looking down at the minister and at the other men who were kneeling there, he began to pray, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And that dear man got no further. He fell on his knees. And then on his face among the straw, and he prayed, prayed, and prayed again. I'm standing beside him for about five minutes. And then the door of the church opened, and the session clerk came in. Mr. Campbell, something wonderful has happened. Revival has broken out. Will you come to the door and see the crowd that's here? Eleven o'clock, Matthew. Eleven o'clock. And I went to the door and there must have been a congregation of between six and seven hundred people gathered round the church. 
And in the midst of it, I could hear the cry of the penitent. I could hear men crying to God for mercy. And within a matter of minutes, the church was crowded at a quarter to twelve. Now, where did the people come from? How did they know that a meeting was in progress in the church? Well, I cannot tell you. But I know this, that from village and hamlet, the people came. Were you to ask some of them today, what was it that moved you? They couldn't tell you. Only that they were moved by a power that they could not explain. And the power was such as to give them to understand and see that they were held in serving sinners. And of course, the only place they could think of where they might find help was at the church. I endeavored to get up into the pulpit. I found the way blocked with young people who had been at the dance. When I went into the pulpit, I found a young woman, a graduate of Aberdeen University, who was at the dance. And she's lying on the floor of the pulpit crying, Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? Is there mercy for me? God was at work. People need it to be awakened. It is today. Spirit of God operates by awaking people. And then when they're awakened, when God's people are awakened, this fire of prayer starts to burn. There's nothing so dead as a dead prayer meeting. There's nothing more alive than a live prayer meeting. You ought to feel life in your soul. Then get into an old-fashioned, white-hot prayer meeting where men are praying. And they're not stringing sentences together. And they're not saying the old things that you're sick hearing in prayer meetings. Oh, no. They're praying. They're pleading with God. They're crying to God. Sometimes it's a groan. Sometimes it's a tear. Sometimes it's a broken sentence. Sometimes it's a sigh. But it's prayer. All true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. Folks, let me tell you something. Out of this baptism of anguish comes a marvelous thing that happens to those willing to submit to it. A marvelous thing. It's the instant prompt knowing of God's voice. Instant. Now see, if you don't have a history of prayer, if you don't have this willingness to share God's heart, you get it by asking Him for it. He said, I'll, I'll give. I'm more willing to give you our to receive. This is something you ask. Oh God, I, I, I want to step out now and I want to know your heart. I'm going to say to you, dear friend, if you're out here without Christ, you come to Jesus Christ and serve Him as long as you live, whether you go to hell at the end of the way, because He's worthy. I say to you, Christian friend, you come to the cross and join him in union and death and enter into all the meaning of death to self in order that he can have glory. There are numbers among us that are changing and they don't know it. You've lost your fight. That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you and kill it. So you won't labor in prayer anymore. You won't weep before God anymore. You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell.
What is thunder and lightning? Well, according to the psalmist and according to the Bible everywhere, thunder and lightning are but a kind of indication of God's power. The God who said at the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. Well, now he just gives you an indication of what his power is in the flash of the lightning, the roar of the thunder. These are but glimpses of God's might, God's power, God's eternal ability. Very well. A revival, I say, is just a kind of touch of his God. A fleeting glimpse of something of what he is in and of himself. And I'm emphasizing this, my dear friends, because you and I must come to realize that these things are possible and these things are meant for us. We were never meant to be content with a little. We were never meant to be content with a little. through the Spirit of God is to pose three questions to you. I'm going to pose them this morning, but I was going to, my intention was to ask you to respond, but I want to change that. I want to ask you to make a special effort to get here tonight. Part two. I want you to hear the fullness of what happened. That, that Scottish man, that was Duncan Campbell. He is the man who went for ten days to the Outer Hebrides and stayed for one thousand days. Revival, okay. I want you to hear the whole story. And then tonight I'm going to repeat these three questions that I believe the Holy Spirit is proposing to you, to you, and to me. Let me pose them. Ask you to think and pray deeply about it. Move anything you have to come here tonight and respond. The questions are this. Question one, do you want revival? It's not a question for me, it's a question which I believe the Lord is posing to his church. Do you really want revival? Question two, are you prepared to call to m out to me, this is from first person from God, are you prepared to call on me in prayer until I come with revival power? Are you prepared to call out to God consistently until he comes. Whether it take you seven years or seventy or just seven days. And thirdly, are you prepared to pay the price that revival will demand of you and it's not a monetary price? There are no fundraising endeavors that go on during revival. It's the price of your time and your energy, and your passion, and your commitment, and your heart. Three questions. Do you want revival? You personally. Two. Are you prepared to call out to God until that revival 
And three, are you prepared to pay the price that will be demanded of you when revival comes? When God comes in his glory, when God steps down. Our Father, in the precious and the wonderful name of Jesus, I ask you to take all that we've seen and heard here this morning and by the miracle of your spirit make it come alive in the deep inner places of our hearts and our souls and our spirits. Help us not just as a church, but help us as the living stones that make up your church, the very tissues and fibers and bones of your body. Help us as each man and each woman to answer the questions that you are with such kindness, with such urgency, sitting before us, your people. Give us grace to do that with integrity so that we can become a people who cry out, Oh God, pour out your spirit again. Oh God, we have heard of your deeds in times of old. Renew them in our day, oh God. Step down. Saturate us with your spirit. And come in your glory. Amen.